And I want to start off with, with a question, and uh, that question is, what is the best way to fend off or overcome temptation in our lives? What's the best way? What are ways that we do that? Maybe um, rule setting and, and boundaries, laying out some, some strict boundaries that keep us away from whatever that enticing thing is that, that we tend to fall prey to. So if, uh, so if it's, if, if it's over drinking, if that's the temptation, we maybe set a rule that we, we don't go into bars or we never purchase alcohol. It just seems like, like good wisdom, good boundary. Maybe we do that to fight temptation. What about uh, logical consequences? We think through what could happen if we were to give in to, to said temptation, and, uh, and, we, and we try to keep those consequences right there before us, the, the relational consequences, the, the shame, the hurt. It can be a strong deterrent to, uh, to bad behavior, can't it? Maybe accountability. Have that close friend or group of friends where you're totally honest, those ones that will ask the tough questions and call you out. It's a good practice. I know that all of these are helpful Strategy. I know that I've used them all in my own life. But I want to throw out one more uh, fairly effective way to fight temptation. And that is simply having everything. Having everything. See, temptation draws its power from a sense of, of lack. We, we want what we think we don't have or more of something that we think we're lacking, whether it's money or, or love or, or power or status. So we go after it. But if we already have all of it, where's the temptation? It's kind of like, uh, think of, this is a shallow illustration, but think of uh, somebody like you know, Elon Musk. How do you tempt him? You know, hey, a new car. If you do this one thing, Elon, I'll give you a million dollars. You know, if you do this, you can have status and power. Uh, he's kind of got it. Brad Pitt, right? If you do this, you'll, you'll be famous and all the ladies will love you. You get the idea. I mean, it, it falls short a little bit because everybody can be tempted. But the idea is if you have everything, then it's hard to be tempted by anything, especially if you have it all in spades. I bring this up because I actually think that's kind of how this passage functions. The Colossians are this little church of, of new believers, and they're being tempted. Tempted to think that they need more than Jesus. These false teachers have come into the church uh, that are basically saying, yeah, Jesus is great and everything, but, but we can offer you more, more enlightenment and more power and more spiritual growth so that you can really know God and flourish in this world. You can really get close to him with what we have to offer. So they're tempted, tempted to, to go after these extra things that they are offering. But of course, to do so, right, to, to, to go after that thing is to say, well, Jesus is not enough. 
It makes that other thing first. It makes that other thing priority. It makes that other thing preeminent in our life. So what Paul is trying to do here is to show them who they have really come to as they've trusted Christ. To show them the fullness of who Christ is. All that they have, that they have everything in him. So that, look at this, look at the end of verse 18. So that in everything, he might be preeminent. He wants this little church of believers to know that in Christ, they have everything so that they will not be tempted by anything unless they will always put him first in their lives. He will be preeminent because he is. And I actually think it's a timely word. We face many of the same temptations today to kind of put other things before Jesus in our lives, things that promise more and deeper and fuller and closer. Just read the titles to most of your Christian books that come out. More and fuller and closer and deeper. So let's take a look at what Paul has to say about Jesus here. Let's, uh, let's just read verses 15 to 17, then we'll kind of go through it. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now there is a ton there, right? Yeah, I could preach many sermons on that. But to sum it up, the first thing that Paul wants them to know is that Jesus is the supreme ruler of all creation. That, that Jesus, this man that only died, what, 30 years or so before this, before this little church was started, this carpenter who walked the same streets that they know, the, the, this carpenter, teacher, rabbi who was crucified, and promised salvation to all who would follow him, the one they've trusted in, he, he wants them to know, he, he was and is more than another good teacher and prophet, more than the first step in a ladder of revelation, more than an emotional support guru or life coach or co-pilot. He's the supreme ruler over all creation. And Paul throws out two claims here to make his argument. First, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, it's well known, it's, it's well known in, in biblical idea that God is spirit and, and thus has no visible form. But Paul says, Jesus is God imaged to us. He actually says this over in Hebrews 1 as well, that he's the exact representation of the Father. Jesus himself said it in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's a claim of his divinity. Backed up, by the way, in verse 19 in our text, where it says, uh, where it says this. Verse 19, there it is. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
not part of God, all of God dwells in him. But I want us to notice specifically the, the imaging language here. Because that was our job, right? Think back to the creation story. We were created in God's image, male and female. He created us in his image to reflect his image. And one of the main ways we were to do that was to reflect his, his dominion, his, his rulership. We were to rule under him over creation, to take care of it, to steward it, to own it. But we failed. We failed as image bearers, rulers. But Jesus is the perfect imager of God who rules rightly over all creation. That's why Paul says of him, what's the next thing he says in that first sentence? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that's, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that sounds a bit wrong and weird to us. I mean, if he's born of creation, then how can he be fully God and overall, overall creation? In fact, that's exactly where, this text is exactly where the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons go to make their case that Jesus is a created being that's, that's not equal to the Father. But firstborn here is being used not as a term of origin, but as a term of status. It basically means inheritor. Inheritor. The one of first priority in inheritance. The firstborn sons in the Bible inherited everything from their father. They, they inherited everything from him. We, we're used to a, a family inheritance being divided up kind of equally amongst all the living uh, children. So in my case, with my nine kids, I divide it up equally, and they can all go buy lunch. It's fantastic. <laughs> but in the Bible, the firstborn has the status of the inheritor of everything. All that's his father's is his. Paul is saying all creation belongs to Jesus. He owns it. Why? Look at verse 16. For, this is the because, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Notice that. Dominions and rulers or authorities specifically points those out. All things were created through him and for him. Every possible thing that has been created was created by him. He owns it. He rules it. Because he made it. We get that idea, right? You make something, it's yours. This is why all the refrigerator art from school always has little Johnny or Susie's name in the corner because he or she made it. Their mark is on it. It's theirs. This is also why the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are wrong. If Jesus is the creator of all things, everything that has been created, he couldn't have created himself. No, he is the maker, inheritor, supreme ruler of all creation. And his supremacy, notice how totally comprehensive it here. Notice in verse 16 that it starts with by him, and then it says through him. 
Notice the, the, the prepositions, by him, through him, for him. Creation's origin and means and purpose are all in him. And then notice in verse 17 that it says he holds it all together. He's basically the kind of the, that mass, that gravity in the center that holds all creation together. It all revolves around him. This man who walked the streets that they walked and died on a Roman cross, the Savior that they have trusted in, this is who he is. This is what he has, everything. You've got to picture them. They've, they've just become believers. They've only heard the gospel through Paul and Epaphras. And he's saying, let me explain who you've come to. Everything we have. By the way, we already saw this in chapter 1, verse 12, where it says that we share in the inheritance of the saints. It's all ours. Now, there's so much to unpack here, volumes to be said. But here's what we're trying to get at in this sermon. Why is he saying this? Why is he saying this truth of the supremacy of Jesus in all creation to these people at this time in this way? What is the point for them? Well, take a look at chapter 2, verse 8, give us a little context. First, remember that he said he created all rules and authorities. And then verse 8 of chapter 2, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits, or that can be the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, they live uh, in a scary world. There were lots of authorities competing for their allegiance and even threatening, claiming to offer more and better, more enlightenment, more power. Think of the, the philosophers of their day with their erudition and wisdom, the Stoics, the sophisticated Greeks. I mean, they were pretty good at stuff, mathematics and astronomy. and Maybe they do offer more with their plethora of gods. Can this little Colossian church really go without them? It makes me think kind of of the, uh, kind of the secular, uh, you know, scientific establishment today that's so intimidating. Sure that they have all the answers with their methods and, and, and theories. The supposed controllers of reality with all their technology. Mocking religion and faith as irrational and old-fashioned seeming so impressive with their theories about the universe and the nature of matter and astounding astronomical observations with their telescopes highlighted on the Discovery Channel. The church and the gospel can seem a little, a little weak, maybe not enough. Wait a minute, Paul says, who created the laws of the universe? Who put the stars up there that they're looking at? Who holds it all together, makes it work? Who owns them? 
Jesus does. What about the, uh, the traditions of men and the political forces of this world, the, the rulers and powers that, uh, for them in Rome? Maybe they offer a more real and practical power to help them in this world. After all, they put up the, you know, the aqueducts and the roads and the mail system, pretty impressive. Maybe the, the, the Colossians should at least give partial allegiance to them, just in case. You know, kind of one foot in the world to be on the safe side. Makes me um, think about the political landscape today, where Christians are literally pinning their hopes on political structures and candidates promising a salvation through culture war so we can rule. My friends, there is a place for politics and acting strategically in this world, but guess what? Jesus already rules. And by the way, look at 2.15. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open to shame by triumphing over them in him. By the way, that's at the cross. Don't be shaken. Don't be sidetracked from his gospel. Don't go after something before him as if he's not enough. He must be preeminent in our lives because he is preeminent. You know, one thing I've noticed is that whenever people try to add something to Jesus in in their life to kind of bolster their shaky faith, that thing that they add always tends to become preeminent. They're always talking about that thing, whether it's politics or whether it's science and design theory or or whether it's that religious teacher who seems to walk much closer to God and, and, and how much they love his teaching and his books, and, and the gospel becomes secondary. And so does Jesus. He kind of fades behind all that. Which brings me to the, to the main authorities that Paul is referring to here, and that is the religious authorities, the false teachers, who we'll see more and more as we read through this book, the false teachers who are promising power and enlightenment through their traditions and ritual a way to get closer to God, but not according to Christ? Have you ever met someone whose religious tradition or or ritual has become preeminent in their life? They're all about a certain saint or theologian that they just love. That's all they speak about. Or they're all about praying to, uh, to Mary and the rosary to get closer. Or maybe some televangelist. I remember when our former pastor Paul was here, he showed me a video of people standing outside a stadium to get into the Joel Olstein thing. And the video just went through the line and they kept asking people why they were there. And every single person, 10 in a row, talked about how Joel changed their life. Not one mention of Jesus. That person or that ritual is preeminent. Here's the question. If someone were to look at your life, how you spend your time, what you put your energy into, what what you always talk about, what would they say is preeminent for you? 
My friends, what we need to remember so as to not be tempted away and sidetracked is that Jesus has and is everything. He's the supreme ruler of all creation. He made everything, and he owns everything and everyone, every ruler of this world. That's who we have, Christians. That's who we've come to. And get this. Look at verse 18. And he's head of, and he, this is the verse second, yeah, for part of it. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's the, the assembly. He's saying to that little assembly, he's your head. You're his body. It's a way of him saying, he's got you. He's your head the supreme ruler of the universe. He's saying that to us, this little assembly. That's what church means there, assembly, this little assembly. He's our head. He's saying it to that group of Christians that we just saw in Peru in the missionary video. Guess what? He's their head, and those people, just like us, have everything in Christ. Everything. So here's the question as we read on. What is he doing now, this supreme ruler of creation? Well, Paul says in these next verses, 18 to 20, that he is starting a new creation through reconciliation. He's starting a new creation through reconciliation. Let's just kind of read it and and pack it as we go. Look at verse 18 again. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, that's, that's kind of the word founder, the firstborn from the dead. Let me stop there. We see firstborn again. We saw that he was the firstborn of creation, the supreme ruler, and now we see he's the firstborn from the dead. Well, per- clearly it's, it's a resurrection reference. You see, Jesus, through his resurrection, was the first one to conquer death and be reborn to new life. But not a life like this one, but a life imperishable, a life perfect. Thus, he's he's the beginning, the founder of a new creation, or a renewed creation. We we see the fullness of it in, in Revelation, no pain, no death. Perfectly holy, a wonderful new creation that we can all enter into, that we can all enjoy for eternity. You see, he's the firstborn. What does that imply? There's more to be born. First Corinthians talks about the first fruits of the great harvest. He's opened the way. How has he done this? Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. He's restoring creation through reconciliation. He's reconciling all creation to himself through his death and resurrection. That's what he started at the cross and what he's doing right now as he rules from heaven. Now, we all understand the idea of reconciliation generally in relational terms, right? 
We think of maybe a, a, a broken relationship, say a broken marriage, where one party has betrayed the relationship, perhaps gone after another lover and, and, and broken the covenant and, and really hurt their spouse. And the offended party is justifiably angry and they ask that, that cheating spouse to leave, to get out. The relationship is broken and damaged. So there's separation and there's hostility between them. There's this wall of alienation. But if there's a fixing of that relationship, a repair where they, where they reunite and the anger and hostility is somehow taken care of and there's a, a forgiveness and a peace, we say they've reconciled. This is what's being assumed here about all creation, about us. There's been a relational tear this way between us and God. We've betrayed and hurt our creator, God. He spells it out for them pretty personally in uh, in verse 21. Take a look. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. By the way, that you is all of us. The Bible says we've turned on God in hostility. Our creator who has given us every good thing, life and breath, everything, we have betrayed and tried to make ourselves preeminent. Tried to rule over ourselves and rule over this world our way and we've messed it up, everything. And thus we've been alienated from him. And he's justifiably angry. Our relationship with him is is fractured. And so is this world. It's like he said to us, get out. And you know, this is one of those realities that we we don't just know about because, hey, we read about it in the Bible. We know it and we feel it every day. Everybody does. We feel the the brokenness. We feel it in our deteriorating bodies. They're broken. At least you do after 50, for sure. We feel it in our tired, anxious minds that struggle to hold it together. He's the one who holds all things together, guys. In In our many messed up and hard relationships, we know the brokenness. In our very souls, that deep sense of brokenness. And on top of this, we see its effects in the world. The Bible says all creation groans, and we see it in wars and domestic violence and addictions and poverty and natural disasters and endless contaminations and pollution. By the the way, this is where where everybody can agree. Whether a progressive environmentalist or a conservative capitalist, everybody sees that it's all falling apart. The world is broken. It's heading towards chaos. We are broken. But Jesus is making a new creation. He is reconciling to himself. As our creator God, he's reconciling to himself all things. How? Verse 20, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. You see, on the cross, as Jesus died, the Gospels tell us that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he was taking our place. The place of relational hostility and alienation from God. Where his, his anger and our sin and betrayal is there upon him. In a sense, God said to him, get out! Because he took all of it, all the brokenness. He took our alienation. He took our condemnation to bring reconciliation. So that when he rose as the firstborn of the dead, we might be the second and the third and the fourth and so on as we trust in him receive his forgiveness, born again, holy and blameless into his new, restored, perfect creation. That's what we see here today, by the way, as this gathering of born-again believers, his body, the church. We see the beginning of the new creation that will find its fulfillment in our gathering in heaven. And I'm looking forward to that. What he's saying is we need to know it now. My friends, Christ Jesus, the one we've come to in faith, the one that has us, the one who is the head of the body, is the supreme ruler of all creation. He made it. He owns it. Even the rulers and dominions of this world are his. We don't need any other powers or authorities to make it in this world or to somehow get closer to God. And he's already brought us into his new perfect creation by reconciling us to God with his very life. We need by not be tempted by anything because in him we have everything. Thus, we must make him preeminent in our lives. Put nothing before him because he is preeminent. By the way, does this mean that we can't learn from traditions and theological scholarship or enjoy ritual and worship experiences or be involved in politics and legislative maneuvering? No, we can, but we must they must be at best second in our lives and only serve to push us towards Jesus, to lift him up all the more in our lives and in this world. If they are tempting us away, if they are distracting us from him, if they are becoming first priority in our lives, then they got to go. And how do we live in this reality? Stay in the reality of his preeminence and all we have in him. Well, let's just finish with verse 23. Let's read it. If indeed you continue in faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us everything in your Son. May we believe it and live in it. Amen.